0: Good afternoon, dear listeners. You are tuned in to CJSR FM 88.5, and this is Moving Radio. I'm your host, Christian Zip, and join me, please, won't you, for the next half hour as we take a look at local Canadian and independent cinema. Well, I'm sure if some of you are hardcore fans, you've been wondering where the hell have you been, sir? And I just had to take a uh, a long deserved, I guess, break after uh, burning out a little bit after the last six weeks of intense film coverage. But guess what? Moving radio batteries completely recharged and ready to get back on the horse. And I'm gonna do it with two documentaries on this week's edition. The first of which is called Blood Brothers and is directed by Steve Hoover. Now this is a film that's uh, about a man who moves to India to take care of children who are HIV positive and infected and he basically uproots his entire life to take care of these kids. And the important thing about that screening is that it happens on December 1st and it is also a fundraiser for the Global Visions Film Festival and HIV Edmonton. On top of that, I also have a longer conversation with Alan Zweig. He's the director of a film that opens at the Metro Cinema tonight. It's called 15 Reasons to Live. Now we talk in depth about that film and how it's kind of an inspirational tale about 15 different people who kind of, you know, lives have hit the wall and, uh, and they have challenges in front of them that they need to overcome. But we also discuss his experience at the Toronto International Film Festival where he picked up Best Canadian Feature for his documentary, When Jews Were Funny. So it's a whole lot of documentary films on this week's edition of Moving Radio with Alan Zweig. And Steve Hoover, as we take a look at the films 15 Reasons to Live and Blood Brothers on this week's edition of Moving Radio with me, your host, Christian Zip.
1: Brother Rocky. Kids call me Rocky, and Anah basically means big brother. I didn't know what I was gonna find in India. I didn't really like kids to be honest with you. I guess I was looking for something more shocking. <laughs> Being there, seeing that they're in despair and they're hopeless and they're like, man, they're kids. They've been seeing faces their whole lives, which is people who are in and out. I can't take any of them out of that situation, but I can put myself into it. And then I made a decision I was
2: man like I need to move there.
0: Joining me on the phone today on Moving Radio is the director, uh, well, he's also many things, writer, probably cameraman, uh, narrator at times, of the film Blood Brother. His name is Steve Hoover, and it's going to be part of a fundraiser for Global Visions Film Festival. The screening is going to happen on Sunday, December 1st at 6.45 p.m., and uh, that is part of World AIDS Day Celebration. Steve, thanks for joining us on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, so um, for anybody that isn't familiar with the film Blood Brother, maybe uh, tell us a little bit about this documentary uh, and uh, who it's about and what it's about.
1: Sure. Um, so Blood Brother is about Rocky Brot, who is a uh, very close best friend of mine. We met in college, and basically we lived together for seven years, and he ended up moving to India to basically live with a uh, group of HIV-positive orphans. And uh, the film, more than anything, kind of chronicles his ultimate sort of transformation to uh, becoming an Indian and and to fully committing to being in India really for the rest of his life. The film was told from my perspective the first time I go to India, the first time I've ever been to India is in the film. And uh, that's when I finally see, you know, what has kind of kept... Rocky in India and and inspired him to move there.
0: Talk to us a little bit about maybe, you say that you were friends with Rocky before, um, and you've kind of touched on the inspiration as to why he would want to go to India in the first place. Maybe tell us a little bit about setup, what it was like for seeing this experience and and trying to live through it, um, through him. What was it like going to India with him on this trip?
2: Um, Well, by the time
1: I finally went to India, Rocky had already established a, a life for himself there. He had been living in a village for a year and a half, and had been, you know, teaching in the village, and uh, apart from that, working with the kids in the orphanage, the the HIV-positive kids, um, for a year, over a year and a half. He had already invested a lot in being there, and I had heard about all this stuff from a distance. Uh, He and I would stay in touch, uh, mostly through Skype or emails, phone calls, and when Rocky... Um, before we went, he actually had to leave India because of a visa issue. So, you know, during that time, we talked a lot, and he tried to prepare me mentally for entering this situation. I, I guess there was a lot of things on the trip. I was, first of all, just really amazed by India. I mean, it is incredible, as it's always described. Apart from that, uh, meeting the kids and, and seeing his work there and what he was doing with the kids was really inspiring to me, too. One, I had never knowingly met someone who was HIV-positive, so that was a brand-new experience for me. I think, in general, it was just really inspiring seeing uh, Rocky just kind of relentlessly work for these kids, um, and there's really nothing in it for him. That was a pretty... Impacting
0: experience. We're speaking on the phone today with Steve Hoover, and the film we're discussing is called Blood Brother. It is a documentary film that's going to be part of uh, a fundraiser for the Global Visions Film Festival, and it is going to screen at the Metro Cinema on Sunday, December first, at six forty-five p.m. You talked to us already about the relationship that maybe you had with Rocky before that, and uh, and his experience that you try to document through India, and and what was great is that you talk a little bit about. how how that impacts your own life, I think as much as a documentary filmmaker is there to just record what happens, it has to deeply affect them as well, particularly an issue like this. You touched on it a bit. Could, maybe could you explore that more about what are things that you feel like you discovered yourself as you know a viewer of the, to- of the film as it's unfolding in real time?
1: On a, I guess, more service level, like I think realizing what it takes to help. I mean, it's it's a it's a different situation. Obviously, I feel like AIDS is uh, a different situation in, in every country. Obviously, there's different resources and for people in India than there are for people in the U.S. You know, ultimately, I watching someone, for instance, Dudiya, one, one of the boys in the film, uh, we kind of see the full backlash of, of being HIV po- HIV positive and. Uh, he falls ill. see Iraqi trying to help him. You know, again, I, I, I've I've lived a pretty sheltered life. I've never seen a child suffer like that. That whole experience made me realize a lot of things about my limitations to help, and I realized I didn't really, I, if I, if it wasn't for Rocky, if I didn't have somebody making the effort, I wouldn't have been in that situation, basically, if it wasn't for Rocky. You know, we, we worked in the Indian hospital, and we stayed there. I didn't want to be there. Um, I was kind of terrified of, of AIDS. I, I realized uh, I was affected by the stigma myself when, you know, I thought I wasn't because I'd been educated about it. I had talked about it, prepared myself for it. Um, but when you're sort of face to face with with somebody who's you know HIV positive and in, in a really intense near death point, and and you're uh, in close contact with open sores and blood, um, it's very revealing. It was amazing to watch Rocky care for somebody in that place. Compare his actions and his uh, motivation to my own. You know, I, I was I wanted to kind of hide behind the camera and not get involved. I was willing to get involved with the other kids who. You know, weren't bleeding, or or didn't have open source. It was easy to interact with them, and you know, and and kind of set the camera down and not be a fly on the wall. But when when things got really intense, it was a lot more difficult.
0: We're speaking on the phone with Steve Hoover, and we're discussing the film Blood Brothers, screening Sunday, December first, at the Metro Cinema. It's a one-time screening and a fundraiser for Global Vision's Film Festival.
2: Hey, this is Steve Kostanski from Astron 6 from Winnipeg, and you're listening to Moving Radio 88.5 DJSR. I hope you're having a good time, because I'm having a pretty good time. And check us out at astronsix.com. Bye.
0: Steven, that's what we in the volunteer radio business call gold. My name's Howard Engel. I'm Tabitha. I don't know, buddy. Julia. Peter. Michael and Helen. George.
2: Jim. I've been a writer for many years when the doctor says you can't read anymore. That's more than a kick in the head. I'm gonna talk about a boat ride. This story is about a car. We're gonna talk about our whale watching experience. Since 1954, I've lived here. It was my job to go up and light the lighthouse. I really enjoyed it up there. I got a letter saying that they were going to close the lighthouse and that they didn't need me anymore. And I don't like talking about it. It's so sad. It It was a whale we thought was dead, tangled in a net.
1: In the end, we felt that we had to do something. We would pull a net in and start cutting while the whale was taking a breath, one little cut at a time.
2: I I honestly thought we're not gonna succeed. I couldn't feel anything, I couldn't move anything. My neighbors, my friends, just willing to do whatever they could to help me. I felt physically sick because of the way I was living. I stopped smoking, I stopped drinking. I had to change everything
0: in a big, sweeping way. Ah! Joining me on the phone today is director Alan Zweig. The film we're going to be talking about is a documentary. It's called 15 Reasons to Live, and it's going to be screening at the Metro Cinema beginning this Friday, November 15th. Alan, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's uh, it's fantastic to have you here as well. The film uh, is a documentary that covers many, many different stories, uh, and it was also based on a book. I guess it was called "Why Not," right? By Ray Robertson. Maybe tell us a little bit about uh, the film in general, and maybe uh, you know how "Why Not," the book by Ray Robertson, was a bit of an inspiration for you.
2: Well, I ran into Ray at a used record store in our neighbor in the neighborhood we both live in. He lives around here, but he walks his dog and. He never looks like he's up for a conversation. But this, you know, you're in a record store, you really can't escape. So I was just talking to him about his books, and he told me that he had a nonfiction book coming out in the fall called, well, he told me it was called 15 Reasons to Live. And there was something about that title and what it implied to me. A number of things that it implied that I wasn't even aware of that it's just almost like a light bulb went off, kind of like, I'm going to make that film, even though I didn't know what that film would be. And I think that one of the things that appealed to me about it was that it was a list, and that a list implied that you would tell one story after another. That was not just a challenging way to make a film or a documentary, but one would say almost, a, you know, wrong-headed That is not the way one tells 15 stories generally. But there's just something about it. I think also the fact that 15 Reasons to Live sounded vaguely life-affirming. And I was at a a moment when maybe I wanted to make something life-affirming. Although I think all my films have been, but maybe this would be overtly life-affirming. I had a story of a friend, Jack Breakfast. The film, the the story is in the film, as it turns out. It was like I was looking for a film to tell that story in. When he said 15 Reasons to Live, I just thought, 15 stories like Jack's, that'll somehow be a film. I think there's more to it than that, but I don't want to take the whole interview talking about my reasons for making it.
0: <laughs> Well, that'd be okay. You know, we we want to talk to Alan. We want to hear about those things. Um, Maybe if you're not, uh, you know, comfortable or don't want to dwell on that too much, maybe let's talk about, uh, you mentioned briefly just Jack as being one of the people uh, that you cover and whose story, whose life you talk about in the film and examine. Um, Maybe give us a a little bit more insight as to some of the other subjects within the film, Um, you know, feeling like hitting as many as you like.
2: Essentially, when I saw Ray's book, eventually, there were 15... words, basically, love, art, home, things like that. And those, his book really was not stories. It was a bunch of essays. So basically, I just decided I am going to be as true to not exactly the book, but the list as I can be. I'm not going to make 14 reasons. I'm not going to drop any of them. I'm not going to put in any of my reasons. I'm going to sort of pay tribute to the fact that that this is what inspired me and I'm going to try and make. And, you know, it was based on the idea that really it almost didn't matter what the stories were as long as they were, you know, good stories about the struggles, small and large, that human beings go through. So, and I didn't even think at the time, I wasn't really thinking about struggles. I was just thinking about the things that make life worth living and how, Sometimes we have to fight for them or uh, grab them harder than we thought. When I had these words in front of me, it was like I had a lot of rules for stories that I wouldn't do, stories, some small stories. Um, I didn't particularly want to tell any of my own stories, but it turned out that at first out of desperation, there was just one that I was having a lot of trouble with, and I had a story that I thought fit. So, um, you know, we have solitude. You know, I don't want to, you know, the first story in the film is love and it's a story about a man who walked around the world and the love of his wife who let him do it. The second story is uh, solitude, which some people might consider a strange choice for a reason to live. But, it's one of Ray's choices, and I thought, you know, it was something I related to. You know, I appreciate my moments alone when they come. I Perhaps I need them. And in the, in the film, we tell the story of a woman who has five children, and the only place you can find any solitude is in the mall around the corner. The fourth story is art. It's about a man who actually is a writer, but uh, he wakes up one morning and has a stroke, And he loses the ability to read, which is reading has been important to him his whole life. Not just because he's a writer and how he fights to regain what little ability he has.
0: And you kind of referred a little bit to the actual structure of the film as as wanting to make them um, almost like chapters in a book, right, where you're going right. through each one individually, and and some people had maybe said, oh, you don't want to do that narratively. Um, so what was, I mean, you kind of talked a little bit about the choice of deciding not to interweave them all, um, but why would that be a problem? Is it is it uh, too much of a challenge to the audience? Did you have too many people who were like, that's not what, we're, what people are well, used to nobody, watching?
2: Well, you know, I mean, nobody actually said it to me. I yeah. knew myself quite well that that was... I mean, I think I could explain it to you this way. I've made four films where I told collective stories, weaved interviews. You know, you take an interview, you cut it into 10 pieces, and you drop it in the film in various places, and you do that with everything. And, you know, it totally works if you know how to do it. I did it so much that I actually started to feel guilty that it was like such a good trick. And I often wondered, what would it be like if I took that trick away from me, if I took that bit of, you know, film craft away from myself? And I think I really was looking to do that, even though, you know, it might be self-destructive on some level. And that was another one of the things that attracted me to the idea of 15 Reasons to Live. If, if If I had let myself intercut the stories, well, I don't, you know, honestly, I don't think it would have worked. I don't think if at the end somebody had said to me, okay, you know, you've had such trouble telling the stories without intercutting. Now go ahead, intercut them. I don't think I could have. But in any case, that was just one of the disciplines I imposed on, this, on the film right from the beginning. We're going to tell one story after another because it's a list, because the first story is art. We're going to do art, and then when we finish art... We're not going back to it. And, you know, could that feel like a film rather than a bunch of short films that happen to, you know, run consecutively? Could it feel like a movie? That was the idea. And I liked that challenge, even though, you know, way into it, I hated that challenge. But but that was another one of the reasons I wanted to do it. it you know, the, it comes down to it just like, I realized after I started making films rather than before that I love stories and I love hearing stories and I love to tell stories. And I was just looking for another way to try and tell stories. I don't, you know, it's like, I'm not sure anybody listening to this would go, oh, that sounds like a movie I want to see. Like, I'm not really selling it, I guess, but it just, the whole thing was totally different. Nobody's going to ever make a film like this again, probably. Well, maybe not. Maybe. I mean, there are films like this. I guess there have been films, something like this. Maybe even, like, omnibus films are a bit like this, you know, like... Yeah, so, I mean, it's not totally unprecedented, except in this case, it's one director telling 15 stories rather than 15 directors telling 15 stories. But um, I had the feeling that if I told the stories well and picked a real variety of stories, some big, some small, some, you know, just tiny stories and some more inspiring stories. I had the feeling that if I did that and I told the stories in a somewhat similar way and shot them in a similar way and found the right order for them, that there would be a flow to it that was as accessible as any normally structured movie and might even, you know, bring uh, bring something with it that you could never get any other way. We're
0: speaking on the phone today with Alan Zweig, and we're discussing the film uh, 15 Reasons to Live. It's going to be starting to play at the Metro Cinema this Friday evening. So, Alan, you, you discussed a little bit here this idea of challenges and the challenge you put forward to yourself before you started filming um, Fifteen Reasons to Live. Is that something you like to do with each project, is find something that kind of stretches you a bit as a director?
2: Yeah, I mean, I feel pompous saying that, but the truth is that on some level, I tell people that basically what it comes down to is I don't have any ideas. I almost never come across a story or an idea and go, oh, I'm going to make a film about that. If you came up to me and had an idea for a film that was crazy and couldn't work, I would curse you and then try to make get that film made because that does seem to be, that drives me more than what the film's about. Because on some level, I think all films, all the films I made are about the same thing. So, um, yeah, that that would be, that. Uh, the answer to that is yes.
0: <laughs> I like that at the end, you, you just summarized it up into one word.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think everybody likes a challenge. I don't think a film could be easy. Because on some level, they all seem impossible to dilute everything down to its essence and take away all the things that don't help, which includes taking away lots of things you love and finding a way to organize it. I mean, that's filmmaking. It always works out better than I think I'm. it's going to, and I think that's because I sort of say you have to send up a, a sacrifice or a prayer to the film gods because the medium itself helps you out tremendously. And it, it it's almost like the medium goes the rest of the way because it is kind of magic.
0: Going through a project like this, I cannot even imagine how much of an impact it has on you. Because, you know, it, this isn't just like one person's story or one family story. Like you're going through 15 different lives and, uh, and looking for inspiration in them. How did the film itself and the project itself uh, affect you, and was it something that you needed at the time?
2: Yeah, I needed it. I don't know. I don't know exactly how to explain this. I think that most of my life, and I mean, I say this in the film, so it seems like a bit of a repetition, but without giving away the ending, I think that is true, that most of my life, if I was, if things weren't working out, um... I would just say, well, kind of like a bus, you know, there's another bus coming. I would just sit there and wait for the next bus to come. I would just sit there and wait till the thing that I needed came to me because I didn't know how to get it. Because I guess when I made my attempts to get it, I didn't get it. And so I thought, well, the way you get those things is luck. The way you get those things is yeah, basically luck, good luck, bad luck. That's what I probably believed in. It's Like I said, uh, you know, the guy who forgets how to read, if that was me, audiobooks. Like, theres you know, it's not like I, I'm just not going to work that hard. It's like, okay, somebody wants me to not be able to read, I don't need to read. I'll get voice activated, whatever. I'm just not going to read, it's just, I'm not, no matter how much it means to me.
0: You know, if we, we move on to what is your latest project, I guess, uh, When Jews Were Funny, <laughs> You know, you had a really positive TIFF experience this year. Uh, Maybe just talk to us a little bit about that film as well and uh, and the good things that came your way with that film.
2: As I was preparing to do 15 Reasons to Live, I put in this application to make this other film that I really didn't think would happen for many reasons. And then we got the money, and then it turned out we had to make the film more or less at the same time as we were making 15 Reasons to Live, so... I shot it in between breaks on Fifteen Reasons to Live, and then the day, the next day, or the, the, you know, we locked picture on Fifteen Reasons to Live on a Friday and Monday. We went and shot one more week, and then started editing it. So it ended up that uh, Fifteen Reasons to Live premiered at Hot Docs in April, May, and we we're lucky enough to get the other film into TIFF. I haven't had a film in TIFF in 24 years, and part of the reason is because when my first documentary, Vinyl, was rejected from TIFF in 2000 and accepted by Hot Docs, it just ended up being, the film did amazingly great at Hot Docs, and then I just became this Hot Docs guy, and you know, then my next four or five films got into Hot Docs. So it just turned out that When Jews Were Funny was finished in the summer, around the time TIFF is deciding, and way too early for Hot Docs, so you know we applied to the TIFF and got in. And um, I will admit that there is a prize at Hot Docs for best Canadian documentary. I have never won that prize, but every year I thought I was going to win it. And a couple, a couple of years, I was runner-up, and I I got an honorable mention. But you know, each film did better than the last one, and people would start to say you're going to win this year, you're going to and I never did. I only say that to contrast that with, I knew Tiff gave out prizes. They don't give out a Best Canadian Documentary Prize, but I knew they gave out Best Canadian Feature Prize, but that was completely, completely off my radar. Um, I didn't consider it. When they phoned me the night before the brunch and said, you have to come to the brunch, which implies that you won something, I just went and looked at the list of prizes that you could win, and I couldn't figure out which one. I thought maybe I won an audience award or something like that, but the idea that I won a jury prize, that a documentary won the jury prize in a category that is, you know, more or less made for narrative films, which is, you know, a prize that a documentary has won, let's say, maybe three times in... 30 years or something. How many years they've had it? 25 years. So, yeah. Then Sunday morning of the brunch, uh, somebody phoned me and told me that I won Best Canadian Feature, my little documentary about me missing, you know, how funny my grandparents' generation of Jews were. That's basically what the film's about. Um, That film won... Yeah, Best Canadian Feature it came with a big cash prize, and uh, it probably will be the most successful film I've ever made. And that prize at TIFF was the biggest thing that's ever happened in my career. I won a genie for a film a hard name in 2009, and that doesn't compare, and, you know, luckily or unluckily. It's Canadian showbiz, so it's not like, you know, there's only so much of a bump you can get. But however much I could get, I think I'm going to get from this film, which won that prize, and I think it's going to win a couple other prizes. And I don't really know, you know, I can't explain why it won. All I can say is, you know, it's a personal film, and I know how to make personal films. They weren't really better than everybody else. But it was that when you had a Jewish comedian, he was damn good. The comedians... Of our world were basically Jewish. I don't even know what you're asking. No, no, right. no. It's that rhythmic, right? Pausing. It's the stereotype. It's funny. The history of 20th century humor is Jewish. Period. That's what. Let's make it clear for your listeners. I did not make the film for Jews. It's not just for Jews. Many non-Jews have enjoyed it. People who've given it prizes were non-Jews. Actually. The little secret. I made it it's most well not mostly. My prime audience is non Jews married to Jews. I think that would be my best I think it should be like the the you know, for if your Gentile friend is marrying a Jew, this is what they should get for a wedding present. <laughs>
0: All right, that about wraps it up for this week's edition of Moving Radio. Thank you for listening, and if you were listening online, thank you even more. That's right, people. You can find old episodes of Moving Radio online at iTunes and on SoundCloud. All you got to do is just Google Moving Radio and then maybe iTunes or SoundCloud, and you will totally find old episodes of this show with lots of great content and interviews. Also, as well, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at moving Radio, all one word. And if you like some movie-flavored picks, you can also check me out on Instagram, once again, at Moving Radio. But coming up next, ladies and gentlemen, on the Mighty Mighty CGSR, is the finest in feminist radio, It's Adam and Eve.